Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This weekend is the sixth Sunday in the season of Easter, and we are seeing the season of Easter nearing its conclusion. We have another Sunday yet, seventh Sunday, that will come up next weekend. Our readings today in worship will be from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48 for the first reading. The epistle is John, sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, followed by the gospel text, John chapter 15, 9 through 17. And in the middle of the week, coming up, uh, as we've got, this is the sixth Sunday. On Thursday next week, you've got the Ascension Day of our Lord. And then after that, again, seventh Sunday of Easter, that's the conclusion of the Easter season before we move into Pentecost. So Easter season winding down. We celebrate Easter as the church, not just on Easter, not just in the season of Easter, but we celebrate Easter as Christians every day because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that gives us hope and joy in this world. We'll see a little bit of that in the Gospel text, but we begin with the first reading from Acts chapter 10. For the context here, it's really missing context, Acts chapter 10 is where Peter has that vision uh, that he gets from the Lord, you might remember. Uh, Peter has a vision from God that a blanket descends out of heaven And all sorts of animals are on this blanket, both clean and unclean. And God tells him to rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response to God is that he can't do that. He's never eaten anything unclean, and he doesn't doesn't plan to start now. And this process repeats itself, and the Lord, in the vision, ends up teaching Peter that whatever God has called clean... Peter is not to call, I think the word there is common, we would normally say unclean. So the point being, this is not just about food, although Peter realizes that this does have food ramifications, right? Um, Hooray, if you like bacon, you can eat bacon. Uh, Pigs were unclean, but now they're not. Peter realizes this has a lot more to do than just food. This has to do with life on a grander scale, including people themselves. It is this vision and this context that teaches Peter that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews, but it's for all people. So just as Peter no longer has to think about whether he can eat a meat or not. He no longer has to think about whether he can share the gospel or not. He is free to share the gospel with all peoples, all nations. And that begins immediately with Cornelius, whose servants are at the door seeking to bring Peter, as as this vision concludes, to come and speak with Cornelius, their master. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, 
He's a Gentile. And so for the Jews within their own faith, their own belief, they're not even supposed to enter a Gentile's home because that home may be unclean. And if they go in, that makes them unclean. But Cornelius has also been instructed by God. He's been told by God to send for Peter, who was staying with Simon the Tanner. Uh, Tanner is somebody that works with animal skins, making leather, that sort of thing. And so he sends for him. And Peter comes, and Cornelius, again, having explained the situation, uh, what he has heard from the Lord, that he is to wait for this Peter to come and, and share, share God's word with him, Peter does, and that's our text. Peter begins to preach to Cornelius and to Cornelius' household. We'll take this in two paragraphs, starting with verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. A very great short speech from Peter here as he shares this good news with Cornelius and his household. So first, the, the statement, Peter acknowledging what the vision actually meant. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Just as the animals are no longer to be viewed as clean and unclean, God is not showing any distinction between men that the gospel is for all. Verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears God, anyone who does what is right, we'll connect that here with John chapter 15, the gospel reading and the idea of doing the commandment of Jesus, which is to love your neighbor. Anyone. The gospel is open to all. The gospel is for all people. Verse 36, that he sent, God sent his word to Israel. He sent Jesus to Israel in fulfillment of the earlier word he had sent to Israel. So if you want to talk about this as being the prophetic word announcing the Messiah would come, if you want to talk about this as John does in John chapter 1, that Jesus is is the word. God sent his word to Israel, declaring good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That might bring your mind back to the birth narrative of Jesus. 
to the angels in the fields who sing aloud together as the shepherds look up into the heavens. Peace on earth. That peace word again is not quiet or rest. It is the the true peace that comes from God. It is much more like the peace treaty signed between two nations at the end of a war. The war between God and men has ceased because of Jesus Christ, because through his blood he has taken away our sins. We are reconciled. We are acceptable to him. Jesus is Lord of all, every nation, anyone who fears him. It's not just the Jews that he has come to save. So Peter is showing this again and again in this opening part of his speech. In verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. The work of Jesus was not done in a corner. It was not done in secret. The Romans are are well aware of what's going on. At least the ones that are local in that area are well aware of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. They're well aware of the stories. The soldiers are there to see some of the events that Jesus performs, his miracles. And as the time comes to pass and Peter's proclamation of the gospel, as with the other witnesses that bear their testimonies to faith, as the the church grows, Rome becomes all the more aware of it. You yourselves know Cornelius is aware of what Jesus has done, beginning from Galilee after the baptism John proclaimed. So that's the baptism of John in the Jordan River. So this sounds like northern, uh, the northern part of the Jordan River next to the Sea of Galilee is the way that makes it sound. But we're talking about everything after Jesus' baptism. So, Cornelius may not be aware of the things that happened before Jesus was baptized, but his three years of earthly ministry, those things seem to have been made known to Cornelius. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power in his baptism. I mean, notice the connection, right? Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism, John proclaimed, God anointed Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. Christ is Greek for anointed one. He is the anointed one of God. The Old Testament, they anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three of those for us. God has anointed him. God has declared Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king. He has filled him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So all the good, in verse 38, that Jesus does, all the healing Jesus does, is by this power that has been given to him by God. Jesus is from God. The interesting note there in 38 is that he was healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Some people would read that and only take that as a reference to demonic possession. 
Jesus certainly cast out many demons during his earthly ministry. But I don't think the text really limits us to thinking just in that sense. Who is oppressed by the devil? We all are, right? Ever since the garden, ever since the temptation that the devil laid before Adam and Eve, that they would abandon God and follow him instead, we have all been oppressed by the devil as he continues to try to throw temptation upon us, as he continues to try to hold guilt and shame over our heads, knowing our sin and using it against us as a weapon of despair. Jesus healed all who were oppressed by the devil, and he did this in Galilee. He did this in his earthly ministry, again, by his healing, by his casting out of demons, but also by the healing of the sick, as he would heal them. That's an oppression that the devil has cast. It is a, it's a result of our sin. But more so for us, we look at verse 43 again early. We receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus has healed us of the oppression that the devil held over us. He has healed and taken away the guilt and the shame from upon us. He has destroyed the shackle of despair that the devil tried to bind us with. Jesus has done this, and he has done this for Cornelius and for his household. He has done this for Peter and the other apostles. He has done this for us. Verse 39, Peter proclaims that he and the other apostles are witnesses of all that Jesus did in the country of the Jews. That would be a reference to Judea, uh, the region uh, in what we think of as Israel today, and in Jerusalem. So the capital, once capital, former capital, but still location of the temple at that time. That would then be a reference to his earthly ministry capped off by Holy Week spent in Jerusalem before the crucifixion, which is what Peter mentions next. As a Roman centurion, Cornelius would be well familiar, well versed in the idea of crucifixions as the Roman soldiers are the ones that carry those executions out. Cornelius himself may have crucified people. But God raised him. Again, Cornelius is familiar with crucifixions. People don't walk away after they've been crucified. They just don't. They're done. They're gone. They've been killed. But this guy does. This Jesus, anointed by God, God has raised him on the third day and made him to appear This connects well to the season of Epiphany for the church. Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphanos, which is a revelation or to make something appear, to make something known. Jesus appeared. He was revealed. He was made known after his resurrection to the people. And now he is being made known to the Gentiles, which is what we celebrate in the season of Epiphany as the church, is that the Good news, the resurrection of Christ was made known to the Gentiles, of which most of us are. There are a few, thankfully it's more than a few, there are a few 
Jews in this world who have repented of, of their, their false beliefs about God and instead come to faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we rejoice at that, just as they did back in, in Peter's day. But there are far more Christians today who come from a Gentile background, who were not part of that original nation of Israel, and yet God has opened up the doors. He has welcomed us in. As Jesus said, there are other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. He must go and call them also, that there may be one flock and one shepherd. The epiphany that Peter mentions here in verse 40, though, originally is just to the apostles. It's just to the select few chosen by God who would serve as his witnesses moving forward. These men would proclaim Christ and him crucified and him risen from the dead to everyone that they could. God had specifically chosen the disciples for their roles in sharing that gospel. Again, we'll see something similar in the gospel account as Jesus will say in chapter 15 this weekend that they did not choose him, but that he chose them. And the apostles saw Jesus eat and drink. They ate and drank with him. This talks about the resurrection of the dead because those, those who are not alive cannot eat a meal. Those who are merely spirits would not be able to eat a meal. But Jesus could, and he did, because his resurrection from the dead is real. He is... He's God and man. He's, he's flesh and bone again. Jesus then, verse 42, commanded Peter to preach, and the other apostles too, that Jesus has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And that word from Jesus himself indicates that those who, in the judgment, those who are raised from the dead, who are faithful to Christ, are raised to life. But those who are raised for the judgment that are not believers in Jesus Christ, they are not raised to life, but they are raised to I think very specifically says for judgment or to judgment. There's a contrast between life and not life. Even in the resurrection of all people. Verse 43, all the prophets bore witness to Jesus. Jesus himself makes this clear as he walks along the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other disciple showing them how all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins through that name, through his name. That's the message Peter is giving to Cornelius and his household, and what a message it is, pointing them to the love of God, the forgiveness of Christ, and the reign of Christ. 
Second paragraph, verses 44 to 48, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So in the middle of Peter making this proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon that family, that household. Faith comes upon them. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing. So these are hearing the word and they're believing the Holy Spirit working faith in them. Peter had not gone alone. He was accompanied by other Jewish men. And they, so that's the reference among the circumcised, there are other Jews. They are now witnessing this very same thing. They're seeing these Gentiles coming to faith. This group that they would have otherwise considered to be unclean, that they would have wanted nothing to do with, now they are becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit is poured out even on the Gentiles. It doesn't fit with what they know. It doesn't fit with their expectations. But they see it before their very eyes. They know it to be true. And so they're amazed. They're amazed that God would would share such wondrous good news with all people. They're amazed as they learn more about who their Creator is and just how deep His love runs for us. Verse 46, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. There's a lot of debate on what this speaking in tongues word phrase even means in the New Testament of, of, our, of our Lord. There are some, especially in our modern age, who believe that the speaking in tongues is some kind of a divine speech that is not understood by man. I don't think that they even believe it should be understood by man. I don't. They teach that if you believe... One of the first things that you'll see happen in a new believer is that they, the Spirit will come upon them, much like here, and they will speak in tongues. And if you don't have this happen, you're not Christian. There are a lot teaching that out there in the church today. But again, that speaking in tongues is a... To the other ears, it's going to sound like gibberish. It cannot be understood. That's one opinion out there. The older opinion of the early church seems to be more in lines with this being actual human languages that can be understood. So the Jewish people are going to be more familiar with the language of Hebrew from their, their Old Testament and also Aramaic. But these Romans that Peter is now addressing, they're going to be more familiar with Greek coming from their background perhaps even Latin. And so the, the crossing of language barriers is occurring, and the, the believers, the Jewish believers from among the circumcised, together with Peter, 
they would be hearing Cornelius and his household praising God in these other languages that are not their own. Praising God in Greek or Latin or both. So not only crossing from Jew to Gentile, but crossing language barriers. The Tower of Babel. Being undone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Tower of Babel mixes human speech that we might not understand each other. And yet, in Christ, we are made one together, one family. It is still a task for the people of God to work towards proper communication with each other, whether we share a language or not. Much work is being done to translate God's word and other useful resources into the languages of different peoples so that they can have such wondrous tools themselves in their communities and in their churches. Peter declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? He mentions that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Cornelius is no different than Peter. Cornelius's servants or his children are no different than these circumcised Jews that are there that day. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these? That speaks to the importance of baptism. The entire household is baptized. There's nothing to stop them, just as there was nothing to stop them last week with the Ethiopian eunuch when Philip got down out of the chariot together with the eunuch and baptized him in the water. So we have another one of those events today. The importance of baptism in the New Testament. We'll see that again in the epistle text here in just a minute. The text for the weekend ends with Cornelius and his family, his household, asking Peter to remain with them for a time, for a stretch. And likely in that stretch, as they celebrate their faith together, they did what the early church did. As you look back to Acts chapter 2, that they enjoyed the apostles' teaching, they fellowshiped together, they prayed together, they broke bread together over the span of however many days, some days, represents. For our epistle text, we continue to plug along in John's first letter to the churches, 1 John chapter 5. So we're in the final chapter now, nearing the end. We still have next week in this letter as well, and we don't even quite get to the last couple of verses in that text either. We're going to take this text We'll do it one paragraph at a time again. So verses 1 through 5 to start. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everyone who believes. 
again, kind of picking up on what we just had in the the first reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10, and the idea of Jew and Gentile alike, anyone who fears God and any nation, every nation, here, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, so more specifically, has been born of God. If you believe in Jesus, you're born of God. Born of, we think of children, right? If I talk about who's been born of me, or of my my wife and I, my wife and me, then the answer is our kids, our daughters that we have. And so here, if you are born of God, you are a child of God, which is language John has used repeatedly through the letter. We see it again in verse 2. We love the children of God. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God born of God. Reminds me of John chapter 3 as Jesus converses with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and tells him that he must be born again. And Nicodemus' response is always the humorous response there. Um, Is he supposed to somehow crawl back into his mother's womb? But Jesus talks about being born of water and the Spirit. Alright, so we have that first clause, that everyone born of Jesus is a son of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So if we love God the Father, we also love all of the other children of God. If we love God the Father, we're a child of God, And we love all the others. We love one another, which has, again, been one of the central themes of this letter as John is encouraging the church, as he's encouraging us to love one another. Verse 2, by this, how do we know that we love one another? How do we know that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God? When we love God and obey his commandments. Why? Oh, when you think about the commandments, the commandments are about loving God. You can look at this very specifically in the New Testament sense, right? The New Testament talks about the commandments of God being two. Love God, love your neighbor. In the Old Testament way of thinking about things, that's Jesus summarizing the Ten Commandments. We think about the Ten Commandments being separated into the two tables. You've got the first, second, and the third commandment with the way Lutherans number them. Uh, you shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. All of those commandments are about loving God. Four through ten are all about loving our neighbor. Honor your father and your mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But in actuality, all ten of those commandments would be things that love the neighbor. We are not loving our neighbor if we don't love God. Right? When you stop and think about it. When we put other things before the Lord, 
we are encouraging or tempting our neighbor to do the same. When they hear, oh, you're a Christian, and they see you living just as they live, they are encouraged to keep on living just as they live rather than to know that they need something different, that this life is not the answer. I suppose that would be to the, those outside the church. But even within the church, you have that same kind of a conversation. We are accountable to one another. And so if I'm living my life with idols in front of the Lord, I'm not loving my neighbor in the church. I'm not loving the other children of God because I am, I am tempting them to live as I live. Oh, yeah, pastor's got it figured out. He's doing that thing. That must mean it's good. And we tempt one another. The second commandment as well, to not call upon the name of the Lord in our prayers, to, to call upon another or to not pray at all, is harmful to our, our children of God, our fellow beloved brothers and sisters, to misuse God's name by speaking it as a swear of some kind is again going to harm others within the church. And the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By keeping it holy. That same same idea. You know, if if Christians see other Christians forsaking the fellowship, if they see them abandoning and neglecting the gathering, that encourages them to abandon and neglect the gathering. Well, you know, these these other people that I respect, they don't seem to think it's all that important that we go to church on a regular basis, so maybe it's not. Maybe I don't need to go to Bible study to, to know things about the Lord. And you can see how that could be a temptation. And we've got it even in the literal sense of the command about the idea of rest. Oh, yeah, um, well, he never takes a day off. He never rests. He's always working hard. That must be good. So you can see how even the commands about loving God also love our neighbor. And it goes both ways. Even the commands about loving our neighbor also love God because we have been instructed by God to do these things. And so by keeping them, we are loving our Lord. For this is the love of God. Verse 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's an interesting phrase. What makes the commandments not burdensome? It's certainly not, not our own sinful nature, right? I mean, when Jesus ramps up those commands in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it so that they are not possible for us to keep. So why are they not burdensome? Well, you could make the case that as children of God now, as, as those who have heard the gospel, we live in that good news. And so these things ought to come naturally to us. There's some truth to that. As children of God, loved by God, we can now love one another. This is good. But they're also not burdensome because we're forgiven. We don't bear the weight of the commandments because any, any slip-ups, any fails that we make, and we fail, I fail daily and often, and 
yet God forgives me each and every time, just as he does for you. I think of the Lord's Supper and, you know, coming into a church for the first time as a pastor. And the people wondering, you know, Pastor, why are you taking the Lord's Supper at both of our church services? You took it at the first one. You don't need to take it at the second one. Yes, yes, I do. Um, I am a sinner. You know, I don't, I don't even do this to set an example for you. I need this. I have, in the two hours since I took it the last time, I have sinned. And so it is being offered and I want it. Um, when the Lord's Supper is there and available, I, I wish to partake of that gift. The forgiveness of sins takes away the burden, takes away the guilt and the shame and the despair. Again, that the devil would hold over us as we read in the last reading. We're going to see that kind of language coming up too still. This overcoming that we read here in this chapter. Verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God, so all these children of God, you and me, have overcome the world. That's a bold statement. We have, in Christ, that's important, or we could say we are, in Christ, overcoming sin, death, and the devil. We are, in Christ, overcoming the sinful nature the temptations of the world and the devil against our flesh. Overcomes, in the Greek, uh, as we translate it here into the English, is a present word, so it's actually not past tense. It's not that you have overcome the world. Although the next phrase says it that way. This is the victory that has overcome the world. The Enemies of sin, death, and the devil are already defeated. And how so? What's the victory? Well, it's our faith. Well, what's that faith? Faith is trust. Trust in who? Trust in Christ. Again, it is by Christ that we overcome the world. This is the victory, the cross and the resurrection, Good Friday and Easter, that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, hallelujah. And so the victory has already been won. The enemy has been overcome. And that is why the commandments are not burdensome. The enemy is overcome. Temptations are defeated. Even when we fall to them, they're already defeated in Christ. Even when we sin again and fail again to uphold the ways of the Lord, we are already forgiven in Christ. The devil cannot defeat us. We have overcome through Christ. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There is no other way. As one of our recent Acts readings, uh, one of our first readings in recent weeks said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Alright, let's look at our second paragraph. Verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. This little paragraph probably sounds confusing to many of the hearers today, so let's look at it, let's slow down, let's unpack it a little bit. This is he, Jesus, who came by water and blood. So what's that mean? What does it mean that Jesus came by water and blood? Well, there's a lot you can talk about with this quick little phrase. A lot of the commentaries, um, the ones that I respect and read on this section here, dig into this as the water word referring to Jesus' baptism and the blood word referring to his crucifixion. So almost bookends of his earthly ministry, in a sense, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Jesus' baptism that came by water is then referenced in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, that we were just reading together, that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power through the baptism of John the Baptist. And then again, the, the blood idea, Jesus came by his blood, giving his life for us for the forgiveness of sins. You could connect water and blood together here as you look at the cross of Christ and you see the soldier who pierces his side and what pours out? Water and blood for the forgiveness of sins. You could also then make the connection to the sacraments. There are a couple of ancient artworks within the church that actually have that water and blood flowing from Jesus' side on the cross, like pouring out of his side and landing in a chalice. The connection to the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about that in verse 8 as well. Um, so you'd have water representing baptism, not just Jesus' baptism, but also then the baptism that the Lord gives to us for the gift of faith, the creation of faith. Then you have blood as a reference again to the Lord's Supper, perhaps. You can at least look at it, you can at least see it, but I think going with Jesus' baptism, the crucifixion, probably more helpful here. The other thing to keep in mind with this little phrase is one of the heresies John is wrestling against, even already in this point of the church. The Gnostics are a major problem. They are a group that teach that Jesus Christ, well, backstep, the Gnostics teach that everything physical in this world is evil and that everything spiritual is good. So your body, evil. The, the rocks beneath your feet, evil. The food that you eat, evil. But your spirit is good. Heaven is good. And so the goal of the Gnostic is to achieve, well, deliverance? It, it's to escape. It's to get out of this world. It is to, to become, to shed the evil spirit, the evil physical world and to attain to the, the perfection of of heaven. And you can still see this one today, how it has its its feelers still tangled among the Christians. The idea, for example, that when you die, you know, 
that death is a good thing, that you're shedding the physical body and all the suffering of the physical body, and that you go off to heaven to be this spirit floating in the clouds or even become an angel. And these things are simply not true. Yes, the body suffers, as does the spirit in the body. But both will be raised. God is making a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth for us. So anyway, this heresy was already prevalent in the time before John passed away at the end of the first century. And one of the teachings then of the Gnostics, of the Gnostic Christians, those who were trying to blend that heresy together with Christian faith, was that Jesus was the one who had come into creation. He was the spiritual coming into the earthly, the physical, to teach us how to escape to draw us out of this place to himself in the spiritual realm. And in that viewpoint, many of them argued then that Jesus wasn't actually man. He didn't actually take on flesh. He just appeared as though he had, but he was purely spiritual. And so for John here to then say that he came by water and blood is a reference to the idea that Jesus has flesh and blood. He cannot bleed if he does not have blood. And he, he is not a, he's not some spirit. As we saw Peter preach to Cornelius uh, in the Acts 10 reading as well. So there's possibly the anti-Gnostic move there. We certainly know John does it in his writings. John chapter 1, for example, is written for that kind of a reason. To oppose Gnosticism. All right, the spirit is the one who testifies. To testify in Greek is the the Greek verb martyreo, to testify or to bear witness. It is where we get our English word martyr. So in the previous writings of John up to this point, I think even in the previous chapter, we are called to be his witnesses. We are called to be his martyrs. But now the Spirit is declared as the martyr, the testifier. The Spirit testifies to us. The Spirit bears witness of Jesus to us. He does so through the spoken word. He does so through, as we're going to see in verse 8, also the sacraments as well. Verse 7, very short, there are three that testify. Three, you've got that kind of Trinitarian number there the number that tends to represent God in Scripture. And then you have verse 8. What are the three that testify? Spirit, water, blood. The Spirit testifies to us as a reference again to our faith. The water and the blood of Jesus Christ. So you could look at this as Spirit and Jesus. You could look at this as Word and Sacrament. The Spirit works through these things that they testify that we have overcome the world by the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, as we were talking about with that first paragraph. These three things agree. There is no division among the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, and they agree. And so as they bear witness, as they testify to their creation, as they pour out their grace upon their creation, through word and sacrament, the things of God remain in 
agreement. That then brings us to our final reading, our gospel text from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves Jesus Christ fully and unconditionally. And Jesus, in response, Jesus loves the Father. Jesus abides in the Father. He remains in the Father. He does what his Father commands him to do. Jesus sets this up as an analogy of sorts, that as the Father loves the Son, so the Son loves us. And so what we just said could be said again. The Son loves us. He loves us fully. He loves us unconditionally. And so we, as those loved by the Son, we love Him. We love Him by abiding in Him, remaining in Him, keeping the commandments that He has given us. So you can see the picture that Jesus is spelling out here. To abide is to remain, to stay to endure. And so we are called to remain in Christ's love, to stay in his love throughout our lives, throughout our pilgrimage here in this place, our sojourning, as we are not, we are not members of this world. We are not citizens of earthly countries, but citizens of a better country, of a heavenly one. We are, we are of Christ. We are of his kingdom. And so he instructs us to keep his commandments what are those commandments? Well, verse 12, this is my commandments. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. Jesus has spoken all that he has spoken to his disciples so that, in order that, his joy may be in them and their joy may be full. Joy, I like to describe joy as a treasure. It's not just happiness. It's deeper than that because you can have joy and be sad. You can have joy and be sorrowful. Dear Christians, if you are grieving, if you're mourning, if you're you're stuck in a rut of depression, it does not mean you are not Christian. It does not mean you do not have the joy of Christ within you. Joy is a treasure. Jesus is our treasure. Yes, as a sinner in a broken world, there will be days where I do not look at my life in in a positive way there will be those moments where i i feel that gloom hanging over me that darkness that that despair but christ is still mine i am still his My sins are still forgiven. The world is still overcome, even when it doesn't feel like it. That's the beauty that we see in the epistle text, right? This is the victory that has overcome the world. Christ has done it. So his joy, it's an interesting phrase. What is Jesus' joy? What is Jesus' treasure? 
the love he has for his people, the salvation that he has for his people. And so that he has his joy in you is that his love is in you, that his salvation is in you. And so because of this, your joy is full. You have Christ and he has you. Abide in him, he abides in us. All right, so what are his commandments? Well, let's read that next paragraph. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. You've probably caught on to the fact that over the last few weeks here in the Easter season, this idea of loving one another has been the major theme showing up again and again, and it's in large part because it's such a major theme of John's writings, and we've been reading so much from John of late. So this is Jesus' commandment, love one another as I have loved you, and then he shows us what that looks like. What does it mean that we love one another? Well, John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, to put this in context, Jesus says this on Maundy Thursday. He is just about to actually show them what this looks like as he lays down his life for them, for us. He's leading by example. He is showing us how to love one another by caring not for our own selves, but by instead sacrificing of ourself for the good of those around us. And he calls us friends. Friends, not servants, although we are still servants. That is true in the New Testament language elsewhere. Why does he call us friends? Well, he answers that question. The servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus has revealed to his disciples, Jesus has revealed even to us, the grand plan of God for our salvation. Three times now, Jesus has predicted his own death and his resurrection to the disciples. They haven't really believed it, but he's revealed it to them. He has made known the Father's will. He has made known the Father's plan. And he abides in his Father. He abides in his love. He does the Father's commandments. He keeps them. So Jesus is going to go to the cross out of love for his Father and out of love for us. This, this beautiful beautiful gift that the Lord has given to us. The servant does not know, but I have called you friends. And we remain friends if we abide in him, if we do what he commands, which is to love one another, 
And this is so similar to our epistle text as well, right? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. We're seeing the same phrasing again and again. Again, it helps that it's the same author who has written these two letters or books, whatever you want to refer to them as. That brings us to verse 16. You did not choose me. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The disciples did not pick to be followers of Christ. Christ called them. Simon and Andrew, James and John, were fishers. Fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Those are a few examples of the, the ones that we know. Jesus called them to follow him. In its fullness, in context, actually, I should say, this refers to those disciples, the original disciples of Jesus. I think it's fair to suggest that this applies also to us. As the fullness of Scripture certainly teaches, we were dead in our trespasses. A dead person cannot save himself, so a dead person cannot choose to believe. But rather, faith is given. It's a gift. It's created so that no man can boast. And so that fits here. We do not choose Jesus, but he chooses us. Now, returning back to the context, Jesus chose the disciples. He appointed these disciples that they would go and bear fruit, and their fruit should abide. The disciples bear fruit. And Judas accepted from that. Peter is the proclaimer of the good news to the Jews. We know Thomas travels east towards India. The apostles spread out and they share the good news. They plant churches in various locations throughout the known world. They share and they share that good news and the fruit remains. It abides. The church prospers and grows even under persecution wherever it went. Jesus appointed them to that task. Now it is also true in the fuller uh, understanding of this text, again, as we were just looking at with the first phrase, this applies also to us. Jesus chose us to be his children, his disciples, and he has appointed us to share that same good news, to go and bear fruit, that our fruit should abide and remain. We are taught we are commanded by our Lord to go out into the nations. That includes right there in your own home, right there in your own neighborhood. Go out into the nations and proclaim the word of God to all people. Bear fruit. This is our call as Christians, as the church. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Note that that falls within the context of abiding in Jesus and doing his commandments. So if we're abiding in Jesus, if we're loving our neighbor, if we're laying down our lives for our neighbors, we're not asking God for stuff for ourselves. Fancy car, for example. This is not Jesus saying whatever you pray for, you get. This is if we abide, if we remain, if we are doing the commandments of God, which is to love him and to love our neighbor, so suddenly our, our will is transformed. 
Uh, as Paul says, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we are made more and more like Christ, as we are restored into his image, as we are being restored into his image, we ask not for things of our own desires, but we pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking that not our will but his will be done. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he teaches us the things that we ought to pray for for ourselves. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Give us this day our daily bread. Those prayers are good, and the Father gives them to us. But this also would suggest, again, if we are praying on behalf of others, if we are living sacrificially of ourselves, that our prayers on behalf of others are heard and answered. And so we pray for one another within the church. As James says in his epistle, that when anyone is sick among us, he should request the elders uh, that they would pray for him. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Again, that's been the common theme over the last several weeks now. We are called to love each other because Christ has first loved us.